0: Not arahato to sab, hackawato, Adahato, some ma, some Buddha sap. Not more to sab, hackawato, Adahato, The last one on oh. the far left one. Anyway, thank you. Very good. So we continue with these uh, uh, reflections on the fundamentals of meditation practice that uh, Lompo Sumato is describing. This is chapter five called Walking Mindfully. Walking chongrom, which is the Thai uh, transliteration of the Pali word Chankama, Walking chongrom is a practice of concentrated walking, whereby you're with the movement of your feet. You bring your attention to the walking of the body from the beginning of the path to the end, turning around and the body standing. Then there arises the intention to walk, and then the walking. Note the middle of the path and the end: stopping, turning, standing. the points for composing the mind when the mind starts wondering every which way. You can plan a revolution or something while walking jonggrom, if you're not careful. How many revolutions have been plotted during jongrom walking? So rather than doing things like that, we use this time to concentrate on what we're actu- what's actually going on. These aren't fantastic sensations. They're so ordinary that we don't really notice them. Now, notice that it takes an effort to really be aware of things like that. So you might think that's a little bit of an extreme um, elaboration on uh, Lumpur-Somato's part, but um, many years ago when uh, (coughs) one of the very early retreats that he led in this country, um, near Chidhurst at Bepton, at Julia Wilkinson's house, yeah, I was with him on that retreat, and there was the uh, Anna Garica, who was with us about three or four days into the retreat, um, casually mentioned at tea time one day that he 'd been working out how the Chinese could make a, a land invasion of Russia mm. <laughs> <laughs> and how they could be there could be a successful invasion of russia from the, from the, by China, and that uh, he 'd figured it out. Really, that's what you've been doing in the meditation the last, the last three days? Yeah, I have, but you know, it's, it's, it would work, it would work. You know. So he's uh, a certain amount of concentration. Can, so when he's talking about planning a revolution uh, during the walking meditation, he's not entirely exaggerating. Now, when the mind wanders and you find yourself off in India while you're in the middle of your Jongram path, then recognize, oh, you are awakened at that moment. You are awake. So then re-establish your mind on what is actually happening with the body walking from this place to that. It is a training in patience, because the mind wanders all over the place. If in the past you have had blissful moments of walking meditation and you think, Oh, on that last retreat I did walking junk and I really felt just the body walking. I felt that there was no self and it was blissful. And Oh, if I could just do that again. Note that desire to attain something according to a memory of some previous happy time. Note that as a condition. That's an obstacle. Give it all up. It doesn't matter whether a moment of bliss comes out of it. Just one step, and the next step. That's all there is to it. A letting go. A being content with very little, rather than trying to attain some blissful state that you might have had at some time while doing this meditation. The more you try, the more miserable Your mind becomes, because you are following the desire to have some lovely experience according to a memory. Be content with the way it is now, whatever it is. Be peaceful with the way it is at this moment, rather than rushing around trying to do something now to get some state that you want. One step at a time. Notice how peaceful walking meditation is when all you have to do is be with one step. But if you think that you've got to develop samadhi from this walking practice, and then your mind goes all over the place, what happens? I can't stand this walking meditation. I get no peace out of it. I've been practicing, trying to get this feeling of walking without anybody walking. My mind wanders everywhere. Because you don't understand how to do it yet. Your mind is idealizing, trying to get something, rather than just being. When you're walking, all you have to do is walk. One step. Next step. Simple. But it's not easy, is it? The mind is carried away trying to figure out what you should be doing, what's wrong with you, and why you can't do it. But in the monastery, what we do is get up in the morning, do the chanting, meditate, sit, clean the monastery, do the cooking, sit, stand, walk, work, whatever. Just take it as it comes, one thing at a time. So, being with the way things are is non-attachment. That brings peacefulness and ease life changes and we can watch it change we can adapt to the changing nature of the sensory world whatever it is whether it's pleasant or unpleasant we can always endure and cope with life no matter what happens to us if we realize the truth we realize inner peacefulness so this is uh, challenging with uh, walking meditation and uh, the sense of uh, of being attentive to what's present rather than the uh, Dwelling in the mind's proliferations and, and creations around that, and uh, <coughs> as I was reading reading through this earlier, I was uh, reminded of a, a time when uh, uh, it was about 1980, um, and uh, Lumpur Samato had invited me to go along with him to the Buddhist Society Summer School, which happened every. Was a two-week-long event that happened every summer in Hoddesdon, in in Lee, um, and uh, here in Hertfordshire. Uh, and uh, he said, oh, I'd like you to come along to the, the Buddhist Society Summer School and uh, you can give a talk. So I was a, a monk of, of one master at that point. So I was very young. I was only 23 years old. And so, of course, being an a, 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 a expansive and a very active thinker, my mind immediately launched into... Um, this challenge of having to give a talk at this large event with 120 people there and so on and so forth. And (coughs) so, of course, uh, our tradition is one of not preparing our dharma talks. And uh, so there was a a, a couple of weeks of uh, group meditation like like this time we have um, here in the winter retreat at Amravati. It was a couple of weeks of of, uh, community meditation time at at Chidhas that summer at the beginning of the the rains retreat that summer, and I, was <coughs> I found myself doing walking meditation in front of Chitha's house, and uh, of course trying not to prepare the Dhamma talk. <laughs> and I was walking up and down and listening to myself uh, saying, not just thinking about being in the present moment, but really being in the present moment. <laughs> I thought, wait, 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 wait. I'm walking up and down, Imagining the people in in, in, in Highly at the Buddhist Society Summer School sometime in about, in about a month's time in the future, and I'm talking to them who don't really exist yet about how they should really be in the present <laughs> while I'm walking up and down here in the garden at Chithurst. They, okay, 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 wait, 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 wait. So it kind of took a little while to reconvene with the body and the time and the place. Okay, right, standing on the ground. <laughs> here we are, Chithurst, West they there at the South Downs. But it was it was also quite funny you know, how there's you, I could hear myself not just thinking about being in the present, but really being in the present. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's easy for us to be uh, creating that sort of inner commentary and then believing in our inner commentary, both about how it should be or how we want it to be or talking about what's happening, or uh, as Lumpur is describing here, about how things are really going badly or how... You're comparing it with how it was last time, or oh, Ajahn Mahabur, he became an arahant doing walking meditation. What doi Chedi, and maybe, 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 and that uh, it's so easy to get lost in those inner narratives, commentaries, and and uh, it's very similar to his approach to the uh, mindfulness of breathing in the reading yesterday. Just one breath, one inhalation, just half of one inhalation, just one step at a time. It's a it's a challenge to let. Uh, the, the field of experience be that simple, just one step, the foot meeting the ground, and then the next uh, the next step, but uh, that that kind of simplicity it creates a uh, a very plain background against which to to see the the mind 's projections, rather like in uh, when you have a um, a film like the screen we have here at the back of the sala when we want to project a uh, film of what 's going on in the in the temple, then we bring down the screen and it can be projected on there. So the screen is plain and white and, and is flat, so that um, the, the light that's, that's uh, projected onto it can be seen without distortion. Uh, if you had a screen that's, that's got multicolored and it's got moving patterns on it, it would be really hard to see what the projections are. But part of the, the principles of, of monastery life and the routine, and also these simple practices of walking meditation, mindfulness, of breathing, and so forth, they are precisely to create that kind of plain backdrop, that plain screen, so then you can see the mind's projections, um, uh, say, displayed upon that. All of the fearing and wanting and remembering, and oh, well, that reminds me of, uh, and just to see that being uh, displayed, and then with that quality of patience, seeing the mind uh, following its habits of creation, creating worries, creating excitements, creating memories and longings and hopes and plans, uh, then. The, the familiarity with that then helps the mind not to get so drawn into that. When, when I was uh, growing up from the age of about, I think I was given a radio when I was about 10, I had a small little pocket, uh, pocket radio, from when I was about 10 years old to when I left England when I was uh, just 21, so uh, say 11 or 12 years, I was listening to pop music pretty much all the time that I, I, could, I possibly could, if I wasn't watching TV. <laughs> I was listening to the radio or playing, playing music. So my head was filled with, with uh, all of the, the pop music of the 60s and 70s, up to 1977, which was my <laughs> departure date. Uh, <clears throat> and so the first couple of years of my monastic life, uh, everything was a cue for a song. <laughs> you know. You know, like in those old Bing Cros- uh, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby movies, that sounds like a cue for a song. They would launch into some uh, some piece, and so everything you know I'd see a leaf on the on the path and it would be oh that'd be a cue for a song or I'd see the shape of a uh, a, a branch against the, the the night sky or i'd or I'd hear the the <coughs> the sound of a particular voice, and everything would be a cue for a song, and then off it would launch into some some tune and I couldn't believe the uh, how um, extensive my memory was! It was uh, it was a uh, amazing the amount of pop songs I could remember, and also Rodgers and Hammerstein's musicals. That uh, even before I got the radio when I was ten, the only records that my sisters had were um, the uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein's musicals like South Pacific, and um, uh, uh, Gigi. I think that was one of them uh, with Maurice Chevalier. And, uh, and so, I, and these tunes are all there in my head, and you know, they just re, uh, replay them themselves. You know, there you are in a forest in Thailand. Thank heavens for little girls. For well, what? With also and them, what would little boys do? What? Maurice Chevalier. I'm in mean, northeast Thailand. I'm a monk. You know, I'm serious about my meditation. But there's Maurice Chevalier. The Nazi invented champagne. What? But, you know that's the power of, of memory and imagination it just sort of, anything will do it's a kind of the mind wants activity and engagement and so it seeks things that are familiar so we have a very plain lifestyle so that uh, those habits of projection can be seen not to suppress them or to hate them or fear them but just to recognize that's the conditioning of the mind and to and to recognize it to know it and to to uh, to uh, learn how to let go of it because you know that uh, you know, that no matter how many times, even if, if the night they invented Champagne is a great song, it doesn't really bring permanent happiness just to be <laughs> replaying that to yourself over and over. Also, in terms of simplicity um, and uh, the, um, the walking meditation, it is uh, really deliberately pointless. Sometimes people say, well, why don't we just go for a walk instead of walking up and down? Because you, you don't really get anywhere. And, uh, the, and so that's a, a, a very natural, rational uh, uh, thought uh, in relationship to that. But the point, I- the point is that you don't get anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> that's part of the, the, the methodology of it. It's not in order to, to get something or to get somewhere, but rather to train the mind to, to bring the attention to the present. So it's, it's particularly useful in helping to get a perspective on that, me going somewhere. because. You you get all the way to the end of the path and you just stop and turn back again. <laughs> so it's uh, on on a worldly level it is pointless, uh, uh, but it's uh, on a spiritual level it's uh, extremely beneficial, extremely helpful. And so um, it's not about getting somewhere, but learning how to be, uh, uh, say, where you are at any one particular moment. So uh, uh, Ajahn Chah would also uh, outside of the formal walking meditation he would. Encourage that the, the uh, quality of walking just one step at a time and that he would use that as a, a way of speaking about how the mind gets caught into what we call uh, bhava tunnel the desire to become the the becoming urge me getting somewhere so even when it's <coughs> it's um just coming to the to the the reading six o'clock in the evening and you've got plenty of time you can find yourself you know your your attention is already in the sala and your body is sort of being dragged along behind your mind, like a, like a balloon on a string, <laughs> so that your uh, your your mind is, is sort of getting ahead of, of where you are, so that there's there's that sense of leaning into the next moment and uh, being caught up in that, I'm, I'm on my way to this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. Yeah. So what next, what next, what next, what next? And so uh, Ajahn Chah would encourage that, uh, learning to walk one step at a time, so that you, you can you can walk quite briskly, but you're still walking just one step at a time. You're not going somewhere, not caught in that that uh, sort of leaning into the next moment, but you're fully with what you're doing. And uh, Ajahn Sumedha would often talk about when uh, he was uh, a young monk. And um, you know, in North East Thailand, people are, uh, the, the style of expression, uh, people make personal comments, uh, things that would be kind of rude or, or very personal in North East Thailand, but, not really that way. So people would see me and they'd say, wow, you've got a really big nose. Like, I never saw a nose that big before. And they wouldn't mean it as an insult. They'd just say, oh, that's a really big nose. This is the kind of uh, ordinary uh, observation. Or there's someone in African American. they'd go, wow, your skin's really black. I never saw anyone so black before. Really? <laughs> but uh, they don't mean it as an insult or anything rude or, or unpleasant. Or It's just that uh, that's how they naturally communicate. So one day uh um uh Ajahn Chad sent a message to one of the villagers to, to Ajahn to sitting he was sitting in his Kuti and the villager came and said, you know, Tan Sumedho, Tan Sumedho, you know, Lompo has asked you to come to the, the, the to his kuti, there's some visitors who'd like to meet you. And so he described how he thought, Oh, I've got to go, I've got to go and so he jumped up and grabbed his robe and put his robe on and scurried down the steps and it was a sort of there was um, Walking briskly along the path, and then the villager said to him, "Oh, you don't, you don't walk like Lumpur does, do you? Goes, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. Oh, he only walks one step at a time. You, you're really in a hurry. Ha ha ha. And uh, how funny! What a, and so it wasn't meaning it as an insult or trying to be kind of disrespectful or rude. It's just like, oh, look at that. You know, you you, you walk as if you're really in a rush. And uh, and so that." Uh, uh, that was quite a, uh, a useful teaching from that villager for him. So, yeah, that's, a, that he felt his pride was wounded, but also, yeah, I, I, uh, Lumpur talks about it all the time, but, when, uh, but it's not something that uh, uh, he'd really been paying attention to or really made, made much of. So, that uh, quality of, of being, say, um, attentive to the act of, of walking, just being where you are, and then uh, the body moves along, but there's not that sense of of me getting somewhere, so uh, and an even more pointless practice that that Lumpur would uh, would encourage was um, it's a sort of pocket version of walking meditation. So he would say, um, you know, particularly if it was very rainy and um, so that it was difficult to do walking meditation outside, he'd say, okay, you can do you can do a kind of a small version of walking meditation. You take a glass, some object like that, and then you. You put it down, and then you leave it there for exactly one minute. Not 59 seconds, not 61, but 60 seconds. And then after 60 seconds, one minute, you move it over there. and Then you leave it there for a minute, 60 seconds, then you pick it up and you move it back there again. You leave it for, <coughs> for 60 seconds. You do that for an hour. <laughs> so I said, so this is a, I said it's, it's completely pointless. But it's really good for learning to watch the, the quality of doubt, like the mind saying, why am I doing this? Or, this is, this is, really has no purpose at all. But in essence, it's just like a, a pocket version of walking meditation. You know, the glass is doing the walking. <laughs> it's just going back and forth and back and forth. And, but yet the, the task is for the mind to pay attention so that when you, you put the glass down, and you're letting that minute go by, what's your mind doing as that minute goes by? Are you meditating? Are you not meditating? Where, where, what's your mind doing? Is it asking, why am I doing this? <laughs> or, um, this is totally pointless. So Lumpur Chah has really lost his mind. The, you know, is this the right teacher for me? <laughs> Just to be aware of that, that doubting, or what the mind creates, and then you know, after the minutes pass, then move it. So, the... Uh, uh, an alternative version for a walking meditation. So that's the end of that chapter. Any particular questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, Vinny. Uh, I was wondering: um, for walking meditation, uh, it's recommended to pay attention to the sensations in your feet. Uh, why is that? Um, well, I think it's, it's a little bit more, I um, mean, you, you can do, um, it's a little bit more obvious, uh, it's a bit more tangible than, than the breath, um, the, uh, uh, but um, sometimes the, um, uh, there's so much um, sort of attention has gone into following the breath in the sitting meditation that it's, it's become quite clear and obvious as a meditation object so it can be carried on into the walking meditation the 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 purpose of any meditation object like the breath or the footsteps it's not sort of sacred or special in itself, or like the moving of the glass you know it's just a a, a means to help bring the attention to the present so if you find that the the breath is more tangible and and more accessible than the footsteps, then just use the breath yeah, it's uh the point is to have the attention in the present it's a means to an end so the um uh, once the attention is really grounded in the present, then there's no there's no particular need to have a, a certain meditation object. So whether you follow the breath or the footsteps or no object at all, just having the attention um, pay, you know, being uh, say rooted in in the present, then that's uh, it's like you've arrived at your destination. So you don't need to follow the GPS. It's that like you have arrived at your destination. <laughs> so you know, you, like using the the image of uh, of a flag on a golf course. If you're already on the green, you don't need the flag in the hole, because you can see the hole, it's right in front of you. You don't you know, take the flag out of the hole, because it's in the way. You, know, so you can see the hole, you don't need the flag anymore. So with the, med- with the concentration object, if the attention is, is steadily fixed with the pre- in the present, then you don't need to be particularly following the breath, or the footsteps, or any specific um, single object, because in a sense the, the mind is, is, a, is arrived at its goal, is paying attention to the present. And the the basic tenet that I I use and uh, repeat over and over is if it works it's the right thing, and so it's uh, and I like to encourage that a kind of uh, experimental approach to meditation. So that everyone's different. Uh, very very often people will ask, well, what should I be doing? What's the right thing to be doing? And uh, <clears throat> it's uh, uh, people are quite con- whether they're they're westerners or or, or easterners. <laughs> it's the same thing <laughs> that people and become very, say, faithful to a method. They want to do the method right. Like You're, you're following the instructions from the, from the teacher. And so here's the method, and they want to get the method right. They want to do it well. And so that, that's a skillful thing, uh, to, to want to, to do things in, the, in a correct way. But it, what happens is that the mind narrows it down to, well, there is one right way of doing it, or well, there's one right thing. And if I just do this, if I do the method, then I'll get the result that's, that's, that is sort of promised. But it doesn't work that way. Everyone is different, and so different methods work in different ways for different people. So I encourage a, more of an experimental uh, approach so that try things out and see what the result is. That there is, there is no one right thing, or there's no thing that one should be doing. Uh, but to, to take the various different skillful means, the different upaya, uh, try them out and see, see what works. Sometimes people, so some meditation methods will talk about you want to have the footsteps uh, in tune with the breath, to to walk at the same pace as the breath. And uh, I remember uh, one retreat I was leading a couple of years ago, and someone I don't know where they got that instruction from. They they got it from somewhere. They said, "Ajahn, I've been trying to follow my breath and get my breath aligned with my footsteps. My my breathing's really irregular, so I'm kind of <laughs> taking a step and then." And then uh, I thought, was that an in breath or an out breath? Is that my left foot or my right foot? And which do I should do next? And I said, look, you're just making yourself confused. Just you can do one or the other. Don't feel like you have to. Um, and so sometimes it's a misplaced sincerity. So you're sincerely trying to sort of get it right or follow the instructions. So listening to a teacher and, and trying to follow the teacher's instructions is a is a good thing. But we can do that in a very Unconscious or, or unreflective way. So the uh, I, 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 I uh, find that spirit of experimentation and exploring is is most helpful. And if something really works, if it's if it's the way that um, it really brings benefit and clarity, then you know, take it and use it. Okay. So the next chapter is called Kindness. Chapter six. In English, the word love often refers to something that I like, quote-unquote. For example, I love sticky rice. I love sweet mango. We really mean we like it. Liking is being attached to something such as food, which we really like or enjoy eating. We don't love it. Meta means you love your enemy. It doesn't mean you like your enemy. If someone wants to kill you and you say, I like them, that's silly. But we can love them, meaning that we can refrain from unpleasant thoughts and vindictiveness, from any desire to hurt them or annihilate them. Even though you might not like them, they're miserable, wretched people, you can still be kind, generous and charitable towards them. If some drunk came into this room who was foul and disgusting, ugly and diseased, and there was nothing one could be attracted to in him, To say, I like this man, would be ridiculous. One could love him, not dwell in aversion, not be caught up in reactions to his unpleasantness. That's what we mean by metta. Sometimes there are things one doesn't like about oneself, but metta means not being caught up in the thoughts that we have, the attitudes, the problems, the thoughts and feelings of the mind. So it becomes an immediate practice of being very mindful. To be mindful means to have metta towards the fear in your mind or the anger or the jealousy. (coughs) Metta means not creating problems around existing conditions, allowing them to fade away, to cease. For example, when fear comes up in your mind, you can have metta for the fear, meaning that you don't build up aversion to it. You can just accept its presence and allow it to cease. You can also minimize the fear by recognizing that it is the same kind of fear that everyone has, that animals have. It's not my fear, it's not a person's, it's an impersonal fear. We begin to have compassion for other beings when we understand the suffering involved in reacting to fear in our own lives. The pain, the physical pain of being kicked when someone kicks you, that kind of pain is exactly the same kind of pain that a dog feels when it's being kicked. So you can have metta for the pain, meaning a kindness and a patience of not dwelling in aversion. We can work with metta internally, with all our emotional problems. You think, I want to get rid of it, it's terrible. That's a lack of metta for yourself, isn't it? Recognize the desire to get rid of. Don't dwell in aversion for existing emotional conditions. You don't have to pretend to feel approval of your faults. You don't think, I like my faults. Some people are foolish enough to say, my faults make me interesting. I'm a fascinating personality because of my weaknesses. Meta is not conditioning yourself to believe that you like something that you don't like at all. It's just not dwelling in aversion. It's easy to feel meta towards something that you like. Pretty little children, good-looking people, pleasant-mannered people, little puppies, beautiful flowers can feel meta for ourselves when we're feeling good. I'm feeling happy with myself right now. When things are going well, it's easy to feel kind towards that which is good and pretty and beautiful. At this point we can get lost. Meta isn't just good wishes, lovely sentiments, high-minded thoughts. It's always very practical. If you're being very idealistic and you hate someone, Then you feel, I shouldn't hate anyone. Buddhists should have metta for all living beings. I should love everybody. If I'm a good Buddhist, then I should like everybody. All that comes from impractical idealism. Have metta for the aversion that you feel. For the pettiness of the mind. the jealousy, the envy. Meaning peacefully coexisting. Not creating problems. Not making it difficult. Not creating problems out of the difficulties that arise in life, within our minds and bodies. In London I used to get very upset when travelling on the underground. I used to hate it. Those horrible underground stations with ghastly advertising posters and great crowds of people, and those dingy grotty trains which roar along the tunnels. I used to feel a total lack of metta. I used to feel so averse to it all. Then I decided to practice being patient and kind while while traveling on the London Underground. Then I began to really enjoy it. Rather than dwelling in resentment, I began to feel kindly towards the people there. The aversion and the complaining all disappeared. Totally. When you feel aversion towards somebody, you can notice the tendency to start adding to it. He did this, and then he did that, and he's this way, and he shouldn't be that way. Then... When you really like somebody, oh, he can do this and he can do that, he's really good and kind. But if someone says, that person's really bad, then you feel angry. If you hate somebody and someone else praises them, you also feel angry. You don't want to hear how good your enemy is. When you're full of anger, you can't imagine that someone you hate may have some virtuous qualities. Even if they do have some good qualities, you can never remember any of them. You can only remember all the bad things. When you like somebody, even their faults can be endearing, harmless little faults. So recognize this in your own experience. Observe the force of like and dislike. Practicing patience and kindness is a very useful and effective instrument for dealing with all the petty trivia which the mind builds up around unpleasant experience. Metta is also a very useful method for those who have discriminative, very critical minds. They can only see the faults in everything, but they never look at themselves. They only see what's out there. It's now very common to be always complaining about the weather or the government. Bear in mind, this was was about 35 years ago, so some things don't change. (laughs) It's very common nowadays to be complaining about the weather or the government. Personal arrogance gives rise to these really nasty comments about everything. Or you start talking about someone who isn't there, ripping them apart, quite intelligently and quite objectively. They're so analytical, you know exactly what that person needs, what they should do, what they should not do, and why they're this way and that way. Very impressive to have such a sharp, critical mind and to know what they ought to do. You are, of course, saying, really, I'm much better than they are. But with meta, you're not blinding yourself to the faults and flaws and everything. You're just peacefully coexisting with them. You're not demanding that it be otherwise. So meta sometimes need to, needs to overlook what's wrong with yourself and everyone else. It doesn't mean that you don't notice those things. It means that you don't develop problems around them. You stop that kind of indulgence by being kind and patient, peacefully coexisting. Well, again, this is a very common theme of Vimalakirti's teachings, and um, he began to speak in this way, uh, describing metta as not dwelling in aversion. Because when he first came to uh, to England in 1977, was living in the Hampstead Vihara. Then uh, the traditional way of practicing uh, uh, loving kindness meditation is he repeating the phrases like. May I be well, may, uh, may all beings be well, may, uh, may I be happy, may you be happy, may all beings be happy. Um, or going through the, the uh, uh, say list of different beings that you are radiating love and kindness to and wishing well to uh, the people that are near to you, the people who are, uh, uh, say, uh, uh, say, people not so well known to you, people who are unknown to you, or people who like you, people who are indifferent, and people who dislike you. Going through these these lists uh, and then sort of uh, sending out the, these thoughts of may you be well, may you be happy, may you be at ease and, and so forth. But when he, um, he was teaching med- uh, meta meditation in that sort of this more kind of formulaic way and generating uh, the idea of generating positive thoughts to all these different beings, what he found was that uh, the people who were coming along to the Hampstead vihara said, oh, "Please." Uh, Imagine somebody, uh, this is just so nauseating. This is like, this is like uh, sort of Walt Disney Buddhism. This is, uh, it's really irritating to have all this kind of sentimentality. Yeah. And You know how English can be very, you know, can, can be quite critical. So, so sentimental, John. So that um, they're kind of, uh, well, as he would say, thinking pink, just trying to have positive thoughts about everything. And uh, radiating kindness, um, uh, he saw that putting things in that way uh, was, uh, was just made people upset. And, uh, and it was irritating to talk in that way. And so uh, he wasn't the only pe- person to, to notice that. I remember when I was in the States, uh, one of our, our, our uh, other Dhamma friends, one of the, the local Dhamma teachers, actually had a, 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 med- a meditation day long that was entitled, I Hate Metta. <laughs> <laughs> the title of the day because it's such a common experience like oh God, please stop telling me to like everything you know i don't want to be nice and so that that kind of cheesy as they say you know, sort of sentimentality it can be really annoying really out of putting and trying to think pink or just sort of cover everything with a um a sugar coating and so uh, and then you know, uh, uh, don porcelain was a very attentive and reflective teacher so he realized well, speaking about metta in this way is it's creating this, this negative effect, but then reflecting, well, what do we really mean when we talk about metta? What's, uh, what, uh, we talk about love or loving kindness, but is that really it? So then it was from those reflections that he realized, well, it's more accurate in a way to speak about metta as not dwelling in aversion, finding that place in the heart where everything belongs. And so then he, he began to use that phrase of not dwelling in aversion. As an alternative to um, yeah, say having loving kindness towards, uh, towards everything, and then in particular, and, and also this is a, a, a style of practice in the in the forest tradition um, where you would uh, uh, say sometimes you can, you can uh, read the, the scriptures or hear teachings and think, "Oh I shouldn't have anger, I should have loving kindness, I shouldn't be jealous I should be, I should be generous." Uh, I should be rejoicing in the good fortune of others rather than being envious or, or jealous. And so the the, the negative uh, emotion that's arising in your mind is sort of, it's a, "Oh, that shouldn't be there, that should be replaced with this positive um, uh, emotion instead. And so that some of the teachings and the commentarial teachings talk very much in that way. But this style of uh, that he's talking about here, having metta towards the fear in your own mind, having metta for your own anger, that's very much the the, the style of practice from from Rumpa Chah and and the um, the forest tradition of uh, uh, way of relating to uh, metta and applying loving kindness. It's not just those beings out there or um, or to or to trying to wipe out the negative um, and replace it with the positive, but uh, in essence, really meeting what's what's present, what the, has arisen within your heart, with that quality of of a, not, of openness of not dwelling in aversion, or I like to use the phrase radical acceptance. And as I think I was saying yesterday, um, the loving kindness uh, has a uh, like the breath has an expressive and a receptive quality. So the expressive side of metta is say those uh, those. Um, feelings of benevolence or well-wishing towards uh, other beings or or generating the attitude of kindness and and, uh, well-wishing. But its partner is that receptive quality, that openness, that sense of being, um, uh, uh, say, a spacious, aware attitude. Embodying a spacious, aware attitude that recognizes everything belongs it's a it's a part of nature that that the angry feeling or the jealous feeling or the critical feeling that's arisen in your mind it, you, know, you, you, you 're not saying that's wholesome you're not saying it's beautiful or noble but here it is that angry feeling like uh, wanting to, to hurt somebody because they've, they're just um, taken uh, you are know, trying to park a car somewhere and somebody took your parking space from you. how dare they? that uh, <clears throat> something petty like that, or that um, someone makes a, uh, a remark that you find insulting or hurtful, oh, how could they do that? So that angry, uh, sort of vengeful or vicious feeling that arises in, in your heart, you're not saying that's beautiful or, or, or noble or something that is to be sustained, but you're recognizing that's uh, that's uh, part of the, the human experience, is that feeling of wanting revenge or wanting to hurt because you've been hurt. That's a natural feeling. And, um, so that, uh, uh, and as uh, Lumpur puts it here, he says, um, it's, uh, it's not my fear, it's not a person's. It's an impersonal fear. So if you're feeling fear or anger or aversion, then, and we can say, I've got a fear problem, or I've got an anger problem, or, I've got a jealousy problem. Um, I've got a lust problem. I've got a, 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 a conceit problem. Uh, I'm always complaining. I've got a complaining, grumbling mind. Um, and so that we can relate to that, if that's a repetitive presence in in our, in our life, you can think that it's almost as if we invented anger, or, or that je- jealousy didn't really exist in the world till you came along, or that you know there wasn't really any you know, any kind of um, complainer that. You know that you you invented the act of complaining. When you say it like that, it's ridiculous. But we can we can make it very personal in the the way that the mind relates to its own emotions. And so this sense of uh, of acceptance is saying, well, this is a mind, this is a body. So anger can arise, fear can arise, jealousy can arise, complaining arises, uh, greed arises. That it's part of the natural order. So that in that loving-kindness, that you're not condoning it. And a a phrase that that Lumpur would often use is that acceptance does not mean approval. So oftentimes, and I'm very aware that English is not the first language of most people here, but to accept means, here it is, this is the way it is right now. To approve is to say, I'm glad it's this way, or I'm very happy that it's this way, or I think it's a good thing that this is here. So when an angry feeling arises then to accept it means this is the feeling of anger here it is it's got this tone this this texture it feels this way to approve of it saying yeah well, I'm justified in being angry yeah I am angry right and I should be <laughs> so that's uh, anger is a good thing so approving is that is a, in a sense um, uh justifying it or saying it's a a good or beautiful noble thing so uh, over and over again, uh, Lumpur would make that distinction to accept something is not to approve of it, so, uh, And as he says here, you're, not, uh, you're not, uh, you don't have to pretend to feel approval of your faults. you don 't think, "I like my faults." Some people are fooling, foolish enough to say, "My faults make me interesting. i'm a fascinating personality because of my weaknesses." so uh, <clears throat> and some, uh, sometimes that, that's a contentious issue. <laughs> yeah, but you know the the great poets and artists—they were really tortured, you know, unhappy people. That's where the the great poetry came from. The uh, Sumedho was very fond of the poetry of of Swinburne, and um, that who was a a, a um, sort of famously um, sort of, uh, kind of neurotic and and uh, confused and, and unhappy person. But that when he finally got persuaded to to sort of cool down his. Um, Indulgent habits, and to to, uh, to sort of modify his his behavior and his attitudes, then he became a much more sort of polite citizen and well behaved citizen. But he didn't write any more good poetry. <laughs> so, some, one of his friends said, uh, "You saved the man, but you killed the poet." <laughs> so uh, this is so. I acknowledge that this is a bit of a a, a contentious issue, or maybe not contentious, but a, 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 a subject for interesting discussion. But um, <clears throat> the uh, the the point that Lumpur is making here is that uh, rather than um, say uh, justifying or, or, or um, creating a positive uh, veneer, you're in a sense meeting all those qualities, uh, wholesome, unwholesome, or neutral, just as they as just as they are, as as facets of nature. So that feeling of of kindness is also not personal. It's just The capacity of the heart to to be kind or to be compassionate. The feeling of responsibility is something uh, that's uh, an aspect of uh, the human mind. It's not personal. The feeling of fear or or aversion, again, it's not personal. It's just a facet of nature. So shifting the the perspective from a person-based view to a nature-based view. And uh, uh, later on in this uh, retreat, maybe, um, I'm not sure how... Uh, how many weeks it'll take to get through uh, this book. Uh, but uh, another of Lumpur Tomato's books that I, I've been considering reading is called Don't Take Your Life Personally, it's his most recent book. And, uh, I said to, I've, I've said a number of times, it's such a brilliant title that all you need is the title. You actually, even if all the pages of the book were blank, it'd still be a perfect book. The title just says everything, Don't Take Your Life Personally. Uh, because that's what, that's what is so easily done, that when we feel anger, oh, I'm, I shouldn't be angry, I'm trying to be a Buddhist, I'm trying to be a good person, this anger is really horrible, how can I get rid of it? And we make it very personal, rather than if there's that quality of metta, uh, that fundamental attitude of acceptance, that, well, this is an angry feeling, there's a body, there's a mind, uh, so anger can arise in the system. Uh, it doesn't have to be followed, it doesn't have to be feared, it doesn't have to be hated, it's just this, it has this tone, this quality. And the more that, that loving kindness is comprehensive, is inclusive, and the less um, self-view sort of comes into the picture, the more clearly that is known and seen and felt, then it's more obvious, well, if this is followed, then it's going to be painful for me, it's going to be painful for others, therefore let this not be followed. So the angry feeling kind of washes through the system, and you know, you want to, someone's just stolen you know, your parking space, <laughs> or, or taken the the last of the the uh, the cake on the servery that you wanted. Then uh, then you think, how dare he? Um, and then to to be able to know that and to say, well, that's okay. It's just someone's hungry. They took some cake. You know, I'll probably survive with <laughs> with the rest of the banquet on the servery. You know, I'll uh, I'll, I'll probably make it through till tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Somehow you, this. Uh, uh, we only have one banquet a day. Well, actually, we have two at breakfast time. It's fairly extensive as well. Um, so that uh, we can say, well, yeah, there's that feeling of, how dare they, that's not fair, or, I won't do that. Um, but we can recognize that that doesn't need to be acted on. You don't have to hate it, you don't have to fear it, you don't have to suppress it. You know, if that uh, averse, negative, angry feeling is followed, then uh, everybody loses. Similarly, if there's a, a kind or compassionate impulse that arises, then recognizing, okay, this is a wholesome, this is noble, this is beautiful. This is, if this is acted on, then then this being will feel more comfortable and happy, and others will will benefit. So it's something that can be uh, given energy to and and uh, acted on. So that, uh, as I was saying earlier, this uh, quality of of metta also often. Um, Metta is talked about as a sort of an extra practice, like sort of doing. Sometimes you go to a Buddhist group and, uh, or a, a retreat and say, "Oh, are we going to have a Metta Day, Ajahn? Are we going to do?" A, uh, we usually have five minutes of Metta at the end of the of the session, and it always seems a bit. because so I, I, I've listened to Dumpo Sumedha's teachings on this for so many years, it always seems a bit strange, like what yeah, having a Metta Day. Isn't every day a Metta Day? <laughs> 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 or five minutes of Metta at the end, like, huh? So it's, it's interesting to me that the mind goes, huh? Because it's uh, the way that uh, I, I feel it's most helpful to, to apply and to, to use is really that quality of of radical acceptance. It's like the underpinning of the whole way that we work with the mind and the body and with the community and the, the world. If there is that basic attitude of everything belongs, then that in a sense that's the heart is attuning to the way things are. and That's the starting point. And as I, I say over and over, that I don't really feel that you can develop any genuine concentration or, or insight unless there is that foundation of, of of acceptance. If that's not there at the basis, then uh, any concentration is going to be based on that sense of you know, I want this state. I don't want that, that. I don't want that state. I want this uh, this feeling to be in my mind. I don't want that feeling. It, it turns into a uh, the mind being caught up in, in judgement and being um, being biased, or, or, or uh, there being a kind of fight going on in the mind, but the, the wholesome and the unwholesome, fighting against each other. So if there is that basis of loving-kindness, a basis of, of uh, acceptance, then everything belongs, everything is recognised as being part of nature. It's in the sense of helping the mind to see things in terms of nature rather than in terms of personality, I and me and mine. And then uh, the quality of wisdom, that mindfulness and wisdom can recognize, well this is the wholesome, therefore follow that, support that, this is the unwholesome, therefore uh, leave that alone, don't give that energy. And so we can, we can trust that quality of discernment, that quality of wisdom functions when there is a, an uncluttered view of, of the, uh, the mind states. Any questions, thoughts, reflections?
1: Stuff. For example, when I tried to some, when I try to send some meta to someone. Mm-hmm. so sure that i know about someone it creates lots of anger or <laughs>
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah that also, that that works in exactly the same way with people that you're attached to. That if someone is is sort of a someone they they really admire, someone that their parent or their teacher or someone they look up to. That uh, it's not just with negative feelings, but it's also um the mind can get very very kind of locked onto. Uh, uh, I've got to have that, If that person's not around, then my life is incomplete. Or, or my my parents died, and so I I, I, uh, I I'm never going to get over this grief because of this, this. I've lost my my mother, my father, and so on. And so that, that um, the the way the mind creates a person um, is uh, is uh, in a way it's how that quality of metta connects with insight and that uh, there was an interesting um uh, dialogue many many years ago at Chichester. um <coughs> back in about again about nineteen eighty or eighty one and um one of the 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 first for angarika she was going to go and visit her family and the family were very resistant to her being uh, a nun and uh, didn't like that idea at all, and so she was quite concerned what this was going to be like to go and visit family and getting all this, uh, this friction from them and, and, and feeling this sense of, well, they shouldn't be like this, and I want them to think this. And so there was this sort of inner struggle going on, and, but trying to do the right thing and trying to, to be a benefit to the family. And then uh, and anyway, she asked this, this question one day during a, a re, sort of community retreat time, with, and she's, when she was about to go off to, to visit family and said, you know, what's, the, what, what's the best way of, um, of uh, say, practicing loving-kindness towards your, your parents. And he said, and so, long. and it was, it, was, it was really interesting, because it was almost like he heard himself saying it, and he hadn't had this, that thought before. It was almost like it sort of took shape as he was saying it, because he looked kind of surprised when he said it. And what he said was, the kindest thing you can do for your parents is to not create them. Yeah. And so that... And, then, and uh, it was a long, long time ago, but as I remember it, of course, I might be creating the memory. <laughs> but as I remember it, there was this sort of look on Dunmfor's face, like, "Oh, all right, that's, that's really useful." <laughs> it's like uh, it hadn't really taken shape in those words before that. it sort of just uh, came out in that, in that form. But it's an uh, uh, extremely helpful uh, advice, so that whether it's someone that you like or someone that you dislike or whatever the, the connection might be, that the, 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 the kindest thing you can do is to not create them, so that in terms of not carrying them around as, a, as an idea in your mind, like, just as you're, you're describing rather, than creating a whole story of, say, someone that the, there's a version for that you're, you're trying to think positively about, just leave it alone and have that sense of, well, there's, there's far more there in the picture that I can possibly be aware of, so let it be unformed and similarly with, with people that you are very attached to you know, that you you like or you are very close to your your siblings your parents or your teachers or uh, your, your fellow um, practitioners and so on that you might have a lot of attachment to uh, that um, that because that whether it's a positive or a negative attachment it can be equally productive of suffering <clears throat> And so uh, for some for some people that uh, that sense of um, you can almost feel like you're not fulfilling your obligation unless you are carrying someone around, unless you're creating them and carrying them around. That oh, I should. Uh, this is uh, expressing your your devotion to to create an idea of that person and carry them around, that your your parents or your uh, or the the Buddha, you know, to, that, to, and that uh, I find that's a very helpful principle to to really reflect on and to, to bring into being that the, um, the most respectful thing you can do for your teacher or your parents is to not create them <laughs> the most kind of helpful way and it doesn't mean that you don't care but rather you're not um, creating or seeing them in personal terms and not carrying them around or like don't take not just don't take your life personally don't take other people's lives personally so sometimes when people come to visit they say oh i just haven't seen you for so long did you miss me and I, you know, you got to, as a monk, you have got to tell the truth. You say no. <laughs> you didn't miss me. Say, well, no, I just actually I forgot you existed. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So I said, well, don't take it personally. I forget the other You know, it's, it's a general principle. So people. I was in, in California, like for a long time with Ajahn Pasno. So we had a really good collaboration for 13-14 <laughs> years. We were co-abbots of what uh, of a Vajirī monastery for, for a long time said, so, do you miss Ajahn Pasa? No, no. Oh, but I mean, you were so close and you, you know, worked together for so long. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, was there some kind of difficulty? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't you miss him? No. And so for, for often people think, that's really weird, there's something wrong with you. But uh, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting when people ask those questions, because it seems like a, a strange thing to ask. Because when I see him, it's great to be together. And we enjoy each other's company. And it's a, it's a real treat, but as soon as we're apart again, it's not like oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, we only had three hours together, and then he's gone. <laughs> oh, you know, reach for the Kleenex. It's, no, it's a start. It's nice to have a few hours together in Bangkok in, in December, and then hi, Ajahn, how's it going? Or, you know, how's retirement? <laughs> so, oh, he's happy, and then just two or three hours together, and then that's it. Uh, so that you're, you're not carrying each other around, you're not c- creating that sense of dependency. And it's not a lack of caring, but it's just, in a way, being respectful of of um, that we're more than just our personalities. And that we so easily create each other and carry each other around. So I think that, that simple phrase that Lumpur used that day, all those years ago, nearly nearly 40 years ago, um, where he said, you know, the kindest thing you can do is to, for your family is to not create them, you know, that, that, that's a, one of those very useful phrases to, to <laughs> take to heart, and to explore that, the that, uh, you know, whether it's, a, there's a, 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 a difficult connection, or there's something challenging about it, or whether it's a sense of responsibility, or a, a, a sense of, of, um, of being inspired, or being, uh, or being close to someone, it, it, it works in the same way, and that uh, in uh, in that that um, the the, uh, the mind doesn't uh, sort of lock that uh, into into a personal form, like like Venerable Ananda when the Buddha is passing away in, in, in Kusinara, and Ananda is kind of leaning against the doorpost, crying, and, and the Buddha? It's, uh, you know, the master's dying, you know, so It's all this is terrible, this is the, this is the, the most awful thing. And then uh, the word reaches the Buddha, uh, Ananda's leaning against the doorpost, weeping. Yeah. Tell him to come. <laughs> and then, uh, so it's this lovely exchange between, between the Buddha and Ananda. Saying, you know, Do you think the Dhamma is going to disappear from the world because the Tathagata is uh, realizing parinibbana? So, no. <laughs> <laughs> is the Eightfold Path vanishing because the Tathagata is entering parinibbana? No. Is, you know, so that uh, what's what's really being lost and so it's a very lovely exchange where the buddha is helping uh, venerable ananda to see that his 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 devotion and his his care for the buddha is still focused on uh seeing things in a personal way and helping him to to step beyond that and to, to let go of of uh, even himself as a great light and teacher So... Um.